Sirs, moms, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Redcoat History podcast and YouTube channel with me, Chris Parkinson. This is the podcast for people who love British military history, who like that combination of detailed but informal chats with experts and good old-fashioned tales of daring do. Please do subscribe and share this episode to help the show to grow. I would also recommend you to sign up for my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com. When you do so, you will receive a free copy of my book all about the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. Today's episode has been in the works for some time, and I was very happy to finally make it happen. The British Army of the Napoleonic era was arguably this nation's most effective ever to take the field, but it did have its dark side, ill-discipline. We've all heard the famous scum of the earth quotes from Wellington, and we know that the redcoats and riflemen were fond of a drink, but do the statistics show them to be an unruly mob of troublemakers? In the sharp TV series and books, we see that morally corrupt, brutalized officers could dish out a flogging whenever they felt like it, that the men lived in fear of corporal punishment. But is that also true? It's so difficult to sort fact from fiction when it comes to crime and punishment in Wellington's army. And so to help me to do so, I'm joined today by the expert on the subject, Zach White of the Napoleonic Wars podcast. I started off by asking him to introduce himself. Hi, it's, it's lovely to be on the show. Uh, it's lovely to be here. I've been admiring you from afar for quite a while. I'm Zach White. Uh, I recently finished a PhD at Southampton Uni looking at crime and punishment. Basically, I'm a crime and punishment nerd when it comes to Wellington's army. So I look at flogging, um, hangings and, and all of that sort of slightly gory, but otherwise good stuff. Um, I run the Napoleonic Wars podcast, which isn't anywhere near as good as this show. Let's get that one out there for, for starters. True, Ooh, I'm the one who has to edit my show. I'm going to say that it is true. Um, I, I pity my listeners, put it that way, but people are, are nice enough to tune in and humour me, which is always lovely. Um, and I also run the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wargraves charity. I'm the chair. We set it up in 2021. Um, and it's essentially an organisation that tries to take that sort of spirit of remembrance that we have for the First World War and Second World War veterans and say, is it right that just because soldiers of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars and the American Revolution all died effectively at the wrong point in our history, we then go, yeah, we, we don't care about that. And we're just gonna leave them in unmarked graves or if they did get home and uh, were fortunate enough to have a marked burial, then you know, we'll just let that go to ruin. Because if you want to go and remember this conflict. It's not like World War I and World War II. There are memorials that you can go to. So our philosophy is people's graves can become sites of memory. And so we restore graves, um, which is a very expensive process, believe me, um, so that people can kind of connect with their local links to this conflict. And equally, when veterans are disinterred, which is happening increasingly frequently, if people have looked at the news about the discoveries around Waterloo, they'll know that this is a really hot topic at the moment. Our organization exists to turn around to the museums and the archaeological repositories and go, look, rather than keeping these people on a shelf as a specimen, why don't we have a conversation about what you need in order to release those remains so that they can be treated with the dignity that we generally give to veterans? So that's what we're all about. 
Um, and if folks are interested, we have a website, nrwgc.com, where they can find out more. Brilliant. Well, I think that's an incredibly worthwhile charity. And I believe friend of the show, Marcus Cribb, might be involved with you. Is that right? He is. He's one of the trustees. In fact, in fact, he was one of the, the very early um, people who was part of the team that we put together. So, yeah, he's he's been in, in there from day one. Um, he advises us on sort of the heritage side of things. So, yeah, uh, Marcus is very much a part of the team behind us all. Fantastic. Because listeners of this show know Marcus very well. He's a bit of a fan favourite, I think. I, I can well imagine. Uh, his his uh, takes on Wellington and Napoleon are usually quite good at uh, <laughs> geeing up the audience, put it that way. that way. Definitely. Well, I guess let's get back on track. I think you and I could probably do a second episode at some point on the charity, because I think that is interesting. And I think a lot of listeners to the show would like to find out more. So, so let's try and schedule that. I'm sure there'll be definite interest. Brilliant. I'll look forward to that. And in terms of today's subject, obviously, we're focusing on your main area of research, which is sort of crime and punishment in the British Army. Would we be fair to say during the entire revolutionary and Napoleonic era or specifically are we focusing on the Peninsular War? So I cover a period that's basically 1808 through to 1818. And the end date is a little bit weird. And people go, oh, why did you use that date? Because obviously 1815 is Waterloo and everybody goes, well, that's the end of it. But Wellington's army is in France as part of the Army of Occupation. So I carried it through to see what actually changes when the war ends. And suddenly the army's got to adapt because it's got very different pressures off campaign to what it had to deal with on campaign. But I have also looked at the period before that. I just haven't thrown all of the data from the court martial registers into my big megalithic database of, of horrific numbers. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, using your data then, can you give us a sense? How ill-disciplined was the British Army of this era? I mean, we have a, a sense from reading the first-hand accounts that there was a lot of troublemakers around. And does the data, does your research back that up? And if so, what, what sort of trouble were these guys getting into? Oh, how long have you got? This is weirdly the hardest question to answer. You know, how badly behaved were these guys? Because it's all relative, right? And I think one of the things we really have to consider is why are people misbehaving? Because you've got this body of law and, and it's a really heavily scrutinized body of law. So it all comes from the Mutiny Act, which is this document that parliament sits down every single year and looks at time and time again, partly because the army estimates are embedded in it. So if parliament wants to increase the size of the army, they've got to have another look at the Mutiny Act, which is why it's reviewed so often. And off the back of that, they have all of these stipulations, you know, things like you will not plunder, you will not desert, you know, really basic, sensible things that you would expect. You also get things like you will attend church parade, which isn't necessarily what you might think to be a leading priority when it comes to army discipline. But those are the rules and regulations of the time. And some of those stipulations are generally followed. I don't think I've ever seen somebody tried for not attending church parade. I, I just cannot remember a single instance of it in my database. On the flip side, you get crimes that really, really should be in there a lot. You would expect plunder to be the biggest crime, right, that gets tried at military courts, because you pick up a memoir and you just trip over these anecdotes constantly of, oh, well, I nipped into this um, barn and, you know, there were a few eggs lying about and I just thought, lovely, I'll help myself to that. Or, you know, I, I was off looking for food, we found a bag of flour and then underneath, um, there were a couple of dollars lying around and, you know, it'd be rude not to take them, surely. And this is their kind of attitude. You know, there is this endemic problem of 
I need to plunder because actually I'm starving. And that's going to be really key to our, our conversation later about different attitudes to this. The troops are hungry all of the time, partly because they're not getting their rations. And you'll know from other episodes that you've done that Wellington tries his best to make sure these troops get their rations. But actually, even if they've got all of their rations, we know from research that nutritionally, those rations wouldn't have covered it. These troops are burning more calories day to day than their rations would ever have given them. So you've got this option, I can starve or I can plunder. So you can see why you end up with this kind of culture of plunder. But there's a difference between plunder to eat and just that's nice and shiny, I think I'll take that. And the trouble is that once you go out looking to take a thing, food, then you get into this very sort of gray area of, are you going to leave a fistful of dollars lying around? No, of course you're not. You know, your pay is six months in arrears. You, you, there is this kind of culture also of plunder for reward within the army. You know, you can take things off your dead enemies on the battlefield. Um, and so the, you get into this sort of very murky area. So that's a massive, inverted commas, problem in the army. Then you get things that do get tried a heck of a lot, like desertion. Desertion and absence without leave are the most prosecuted crime in the army during this period. Something like half of all trials are for desertion or absence without leave. And yet when you look at the scale of the issue, desertion, it's not a big problem for Wellington's force. I think at worst, you're talking sort of half of a percent of troops on active deployment are deserting in a given month. It's not a big problem, but the army treats it as the most serious offense to prosecute. So are they, are they badly behaved? They're well enough behaved, I guess, is my sort of sit on the fence answer. They, they stay together in units. So discipline has two sides to it, right? One is the, are you going to stay in line? The other is, are you going to stay together as a unit to be able to fight? And the British Army does that second one ridiculously well, time and time again. And, and there are all kinds of reasons for that. Part of it is, um, you know, the cohesion that exists at a subunit level. If folks have ever come across Ed Coss's book, All for the King's Shilling, 100% recommend that because it really gives you this insight into some of the psychology of what is keeping these men together and what motivates them day to day. And that discipline, that discipline on the battlefield is absolutely cast iron. There are very, very few issues with that. Uh, nobody that I can recall ever actually gets tried for cowardice before the enemy either, which again gives you an indication that actually that facet of discipline is absolutely fine. Um, so they're, they're reasonably well behaved, but just they're, they're, they're not really kind of tuned into this idea that somebody else's property is their property and it's not for me to take. That, that's not their, their attitude to, to life, which is ironic, actually, because this is a time when society is absolutely vicious in terms of those civilian laws, the laws outside of the army that dictate um, the, this idea that you're not going to take other people's property because you'll be hanged for it. So it's, it's a really kind of weird gray area. And it's, it serves to kind of underline this point that military law is not um, civilian law. They are two very different bodies. This is probably outside the scope of your research, Zach. So do cut me off, but I'm just interested if, if you've got a sense of it is we have this image that a lot of recruits to the British Army of this time were sort of King's Hard Bargain type men, you know, the sort who would have been in 
jail or, or hung if they didn't volunteer for the army. Do you, does, does that actually bear up when you look at the research and, and is, is there a sense that that would have made the men worse behaved because there were so many sort of criminal elements already there? Yeah, we're, we're straying into that whole kind of scum of the earth kind of debate, aren't we? Which is something that I do love to passionately rant about time and time again. Um, I, I will spare you the details other than to say, yes, Wellington did believe it. He said it on four separate occasions. So there's no escaping that. Uh, and also it's utter, utter crap. It is not the case that Wellington's army would start with the scum of the earth. Now there is this facility, as you say, to draft people straight into the army from, um, from the, the courtroom, in fact. So if you look at the old Bailey records, they have this facility to sentence people to serve in the army for either a set period of time or for more normally for life. The trouble is most of those get drafted straight into the penal battalions. The penal battalions are generally sent to the West Indies, which is in effect a death sentence in itself because of issues of disease back then. So it's rare for those individuals to then end up in something like Wellington's line regiments, because Wellington's line regiments are generally staffed with recruits from all over the UK. I mean, we know that a third of all regiments, uh, sorry, a third of all men within regiments were actually Irish. So the Irish contingent ends up being a huge part of Wellington's army, um, even in those regiments that aren't explicitly Irish in, in their name. Um, so does that mean that you don't have any people from prisons? No, of course not. But prison operates a bit differently back then to how it operates back now. So if you're in debt, you can end up in prison. And we have gentlemen who end up in, in debt who take their families into prison because prison is a much more sort of open, a debtor's prison is much more open. You can have your family in there, you can have visitors and all kinds of things. So this idea that, oh, they're all murderers and, and thieves and the rest of it, just doesn't stack up to the reality. The vast majority of his army are laboring classes, people who want a couple of meals a day and a regular wage and think the army is gonna provide it and they're on hard times, it's an economic depression, and so they go join the army. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I did a whole video actually on, uh, on the whole scum of the earth question and essentially agreed with you, but it just makes a great headline and people do love to debate it. So I thought I'd throw that in there a bit. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's one of those that comes around time and time again. Um, and the apologists for Wellington love to go, oh, he didn't mean it really. It was a backhanded compliment. And it was a backhanded compliment once where he turns around at a dinner party and goes, you know, we, we have the scum of the earth as soldiers. And it's remarkable that the army managed to make such fine fellows of them in that sort of incredibly patronizing tone that you can just imagine Wellington had on occasion. But yeah. on, I mean, think about the original quote the the first time he uses this comment but after Victoria it is Victoria and everybody thinks oh it's about plundering the baggage train after Victoria it's not what it's actually about is that a week after Victoria when the army's moved on the mayor of Victoria writes to him and goes look we're we're delighted that you've you've won this battle and you've liberated us from French control thank you very much one small thing though we do have a problem with some of your soldiers who are still marauding the countryside casually plundering the locals do you think you could do something about it? Because it's not great for business. And, and that's when Wellington sits down and he's very angry. He's writing it in a private letter rather than a public capacity. And that's important as well. But he writes to Barthurst and says, it is quite impossible for me or any other man to command a British army under the existing system. We have in the service the scum of the earth as common soldiers. 
Um, and yeah, he, he believed that. You know, bear in mind, Wellington's an aristocrat. Of course he believed that. He was going to believe that. Um, so yeah, he, he, he might have believed it, but that didn't make it so. Yeah. Well, I think, I think we've, we've covered a lot of the, the key offences you mentioned, such as desertion, absent without leave, um, plundering. But what, what we haven't discussed yet, maybe you could go into some details now, are the sorts of punishments that were dished out. Can you give us a sense of what crimes deserve, you know, what, what punishments were given for what crimes, that sort of thing? Sure. Um, so let's start with desertion because it's the most common one. With all of these things, it's a sliding scale. So there's a, a theoretical legal maximum. And then you've also got to bear in mind there are different levels of court within this system, and that has an impact because the lowest court is the regimental courts martial that can only issue 500 lashes up until 1812, and then the Duke of York turns around and issues this order saying you're not issuing more than 300. Then at the top you've got the general courts martial that does the most serious crimes, um, particularly your mutinies and your desertions. Um, although that's not always the case, and we can talk about that kind of grey area in a bit. Um, and those are the ones that can also try the officers. So officers can't be tried at regimental courts martial. Regimental courts martial is only meant to deal with internal business for the rank and file. Um, but the the theoretical maximums there are you can be shot. You know that that's the that's the the, the top level of punishment. Quite obviously, uh, you can be transported to New South Wales for seven to fourteen years, or even for life, depending on the scale of your crime. Um, and flogging, the theoretical maximum there is 1,500 lashes. Now, what I will say is I've never seen it sentenced. Well, no, that's not true. I've seen it sentenced on three occasions, and every single time the king steps in and says, no, you're not doing that. Partly because in 1807, the king issues this um, basically piece of advice saying, look, in my considered opinion, 1,000 lashes is quite enough. And you still think, 1,000 lashes? Um, but it's interesting, the king expresses that opinion, and yet he gets ignored. On several occasions, 1,200 lashes is issued, and I've seen that inflicted, at least according to the records. So flogging was definitely a key part of this. Um, plunder, we, we've talked about, that's more likely to get you a flogging than anything else. What it won't generally get you is a fine. And that's really interesting, because it starts to raise this question of why... Wellington didn't understand that civilians weren't willing to come forward and testify because he complains in his letters, why can't I get these civilians to come to a court and tell me the evidence of what happened in this case? Because if I haven't got the witness, the case is going to collapse because you can't prosecute without a witness, quite obviously. Um, and there probably lies your answer, that when it comes to the end of the trial, are these people getting their money back? Well, if they are, they're not getting it from the soldier, um, because you can imagine what the army's like. It's, it's all about, if, if Wellington had access to spreadsheets, can you imagine the insanity that would have unfolded? He would have loved Excel. Um, and this, this, this force is incredibly careful about making sure that the, the books are balanced. You know, everything is checked. And if the army is paying out to reimburse civilians, why the heck aren't they getting that money back off the soldier? Because they do it when soldiers start selling their kit. That's when you see soldiers getting fined and they get docked a certain amount out of their wages. So men aren't getting fined for plundering. They are getting flogged for plundering. There's this whole unending debate about 
different societies and do they think that flogging is a good idea? So we have some anecdotes that suggest massive disgust from civilians um, at the practice of flogging. So one guy is, is tied to a tree on one occasion and he's uh, flogged and then um, obviously released and he's plundered, right? And the civilians look on this and they're just appalled. They're so appalled that they then go and get an ax and chop down said tree because they just don't want that thought process and that association. So you've got all kinds of things at play here. Mutiny is another one. I mean, the, the, the Mutiny Act says it all, right? If you're going to name an act after mutiny, clearly you're going to take that seriously. Quite obviously, you can be shot for mutiny, but it's pretty uncommon. What you sometimes get is a softer version of mutiny, mutinous conduct, which perhaps is when you turn around to an officer and give them a string of four-letter words when they give you an order. That's mutinous conduct, quite obviously. And that's the kind of thing that ends up being tried. What you don't see is sort of the big scale uh, naval style mutinies, you know, like Spithead and Nor, where huge numbers just go, we're not going to see. You're going to deal with our grievances. You don't get that kind of thing. Partly because there is this kind of system of restitution within the army. If you've got a problem, the regiment gets inspected every six months and you have the ability as any member of this regiment, doesn't matter what rank you are, to turn around and say, look, I've got this problem. I'm not happy about it. Can you have a, a little look into this and see whether or not my grievance is justified? And so that perhaps is part of the reason why we don't have these large scale problems. It doesn't mean that there aren't some pretty horrendous breakdowns in discipline. Badahoff, San Sebastian, Theodore Rodrigo to a lesser extent, but they're not mutiny. Like I say, church parade non-attendance doesn't get tried. You also get um, uh, basically an illegal tier of court being used, and, and this is a brilliant one. Um, so we, because it's not legal, we, uh, we don't have much evidence of this, but the, the Mutiny Act says you can have a general court-martial or a regimental court-martial, or from 1812, they introduced this kind of intermediate to the general regimental courts martial. Now, there is a sub-level, a very murky level of court called the company courts martial that has no legal basis, but it's basically this idea that within a unit and within a subunit, so within a company, you might have a particular individual who, let's say, doesn't wash. Or there's another instance of a guy, I'm not entirely sure that I believe this anecdote, but he, he takes to biting people when he gets into scuffles with them. Um, so the, the dirty guy. I can believe that. I've been bitten in a street fight before. <laughs> that, that's unpleasant. I hope you've got your tetanus jab afterwards. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so the, the dirtiness guy, their solution is they get a corporal and a bunch of privates down and they judge him literally as peers. And they say, look, you're dirty. We know you're dirty. We've told you to clean. You're not cleaning yourself. Here's the solution. We're going to strip you naked, dunk you in the horse trough, and scrub you till you're red raw and you're not going to do it again because you're not going to like that experience and that works the one that i don't believe um entirely which is the uh, the biting one is that i just don't believe the punishment that's issued yeah because the the solution they decide that the solution to him biting people is we're going to knock his front teeth out so they then summon the farrier who um says well, I've got a better idea. Rather than take his front teeth out, why don't we just remove all the teeth from his bottom jaw? And apparently that's what's carried into effect. Now, the reason I don't believe it is that if you did that, you wouldn't be able to bite open cartridge paper. So you wouldn't be able to serve as a soldier. So right. logically, that doesn't make a lot of sense. 
um, but it gives you an idea, if nothing else, of this culture. Although, if he was, if if there was a farrier in the regiment, could he have been a cavalryman who maybe didn't have to fire a musket too often? There is that, but they do then carry the pistols, don't they? Um, and if you know, some of them had carbines as well. So you know, it's a good point. Um, but yeah, it just seems a bit. It's a bit harsh, really, isn't it? Mm, mm. I mean, knock a couple of front teeth out. Well, maybe you know, you you can debate yeah. that one. Um, the other thing that I love about these company courts martial is that they get these little kind of tacit acknowledgements and sort of seals of approval that they just shouldn't get because they're not legal. So in the standing orders of, I think it's the 85th Regiment, there is, and these are published, so you can physically walk into a shop during this period and pick these off the shelf. Um, but they say that where possible, you should use a company courts martial rather than sending it to a full general uh, regimental courts martial. The idea being that if you deal deal with it at company courts martial there's no record if you do it at rcm there is and so it creates this impression that you're maintaining discipline within your unit without really having to call many rcms at all so it makes your unit look way better disciplined than it yeah. actually is and it just it just shines this massive light on how a lot of how discipline works is actually really kind of quiet and underhand. It's about those little conversations in people's ear. You're not going to do that again, because if I catch you, I'll put you up on an RCM. You'll get 300 lashes and you won't like that experience sort of thing. And it, it's that kind of give and take and that pragmatism that's really at the heart of the book that I'm writing. And the, the company courts martial, how far could they take it in terms of punishment? For example, could they, um, could they give a flogging at that level or not? No, so the, the, the idea behind a company courts martial is anything but flogging. You know, it's the sergeant might take you behind the, the back uh, of the latrines and black your eye um, as a, you're not going to do that again, Sonny, kind of thing. Or um, there's a, one instance of somebody who ends up burning the dinner of his colleagues. And so his punishment is to um, march up and down the, his line of, of colleagues in slow time and they just beat him over the head with the forage caps repeatedly and has to do this twice. And if he tries to speed up, he's got to go and start the whole process all over again. Um, so, you know, you've got kind of running the gauntlet style punishments, but it's very much about the physical without flogging. Um, things to sort of teach you a, a moral lesson. You're going to remember it. It wasn't pleasant. And, and then, you know, the problem is solved. And were these punishments, I mean, who, who would sit on a company court-martial? Would it go as high as, say, the captain, or would it generally be the NCOs? No, it would be an NCO affair. So normally you'd have either a corporal or a sergeant in there. They would probably sort of tell the captain, look, we've got this problem with this guy. You know, this is our plan. And the captain would just sort of give them the quiet nod. Um, in theory, they should have then turned around to the captain and said, look, this is what we're going to do to the guy. That's all right, isn't it, sir? In reality, did they do that? Well, the whole thing's not legal. And for the officers, they don't want any involvement in it because if somebody then complains, take the, the knocking out of the teeth, for example, if the, the, the soldier then complains and says, look, I haven't got any bottom teeth. This happened at company courts martial. This is not on. The officers don't want culpability for that. They don't want that paper trail. They don't want somebody to be able to say, well, look, we had this approved by Captain X. So I can well imagine that sort of somebody has a quiet word in the captain's ear 
and the captain goes, yeah, you know how to deal with that. Just just make it so. Um, and then doesn't have anything to do with the whole process going forward. Yeah. Well, well, let's move on then. And so I want to get into a bit more detail on floggings. You know, I think it's quite fascinating. I think a lot of the viewers and listeners will be aware of floggings, you know, from things like the Sharp series and so forth. So let's say someone's been a bit naughty, they've been, they've been caught looting, they're in a bit of trouble, and they, they go for a courts martial and they get 500 uh, strokes as their punishment. How does it all work? You know, what's the logistics of making this happen? Where does it happen? Who does it? What's the aftercare like? Can you give us a sense of that? Sure, everybody loves a flogging in a sort of weird kind of way. We don't love a flogging, but we do love a flogging. Um, shall we start with what this will do to you? Because this is a big debate and everybody turns around to me and they says, oh, 1500 lashes, a thousand lashes, that's gonna kill a man, right? I'm not so sure, and I'm not a defender of flogging. Um, I will be the first to tell you that in my database, which has nine and a half thousand cases in it, I've counted the number of lashes and it's just shy of 2 million. The army absolutely loves to flog. There's no getting away from that. Now, just because the army issues 2 million lashes doesn't mean that it inflicts 2 million lashes. And so this is where the whole pragmatism element comes in. But in terms of the process, so the first thing you do is you parade the unit. Flogging is meant to be public. So there's a book by Roger Buckley that, that's on the British West India Army. And he talks about the British Army's military justice system as basically being capricious and arbitrary and terror and torture as public spectacle. Now, there are reasons that I don't agree with Buckley. I think the, the system is way more complex. You've heard that already with company courts martial. This isn't just about let's beat these people into submission, partly because you can't command a force by beating them into submission. But there is definitely a public spectacle element to punishment during this period. And you've got to bear in mind that's consistent with society. Hangings are public. They're, people go to watch a hanging and people hand out last speeches and little mementos of the occasion. There's a whole business around that. So there is a lot of brutality in this system. Um, and you parade the regiment because the reason you're punishing this guy, the reason you're flogging him, isn't just to send a message to him. It's to reinforce this message that, look, there's a law. And if you don't stick to the law, this is what happens to you. And remember that. Um, so sure, the public spectacle element is absolutely embedded in it. You parade the regiment, you then bring the accused in, and then you read the proceedings of the court martial. And this is really important in terms of saying, look, this is what isn't okay. You know, you, you go through, this is the charge. This was the evidence. You can quite clearly see that this person was guilty. The officers came to this conclusion and they are giving you this punishment. And that helps to establish legitimacy. It kind of takes us away from this idea that if the officer didn't like you, he'd just casually have you strung up for a couple of hundred lashes. Um, and that's where this whole capricious and arbitrary argument starts to fall apart because there is a process and the only way in which you can start to flog is if you adhere to this process and there are checks and balances you know the general courts martial have to be reviewed either by wellington or by the, the commander-in-chief back in london and if they go to the commander-in-chief back in london they then have to go to the king or the prince regent so there is this whole process that is very much focused on making sure that the law is applied in a legal way. Um, 
how does the process work? Well, then once you're paraded, you're, you've had the proceedings read, you're told to take your shirt off. Um, there's probably a humiliation element in that. Um, you know, you've got to strip in front of your colleagues and you're, you're being stripped for a particular purpose. That's not to suggest that you know, you've got Victorian attitudes to, to prudishness um, amongst these rank and file. You know, these are people are living and dying together. Um, they're, they're certainly used to seeing each other in the buff when they get the opportunity to wash. Um, but nonetheless, the fact that you're being stripped in order to be punished, you know, there's a humiliation side to that. Um, and then up steps the drummer boy. Now, this is where the big debates come in, in terms of differences between army and navy, because everybody says, well, look, the navy issues dozens of lashes rather than hundreds of lashes. So the army will issue 100, 200, and sometimes, you know, multiples of 50, but generally it's big numbers. The Navy, it's one dozen, two dozen, three dozen. And that's where people kind of go, well, look, the Navy's more lenient. And this is where I'm not entirely sure, because for pretty obvious reasons, nobody's gone and got nerdy about types of whip and impact of a different whip on a body versus another. You need, you'd need to get sort of ballistics dummies and, and all the rest of it to do this. And I think we've probably got better things to do with our lives than start beating up um, ballistic dummies. Sounds quite I, fun, to be fair. It does. It's the sort of thing that you can kind of imagine doing for an afternoon, but I'm not sure I I'd Margaret get... Margaret would be up for it. Yes, but um, I think he'd want to be the one handing out the flogging, certainly not being on the receiving end. So... There is that. Um, but what I see when I go to different museums is different styles of whip. And this is going to sound really weird to people. So apologies. Please try not to be like freaked out by this whole thing. Believe me, I've heard all of the jokes about me and my fixation with whips. Um, so <laughs> you don't need to post them in the comments, folks. But when you go to Portsmouth Dockyards, for example, you can see two different styles of the Cat of Nine Tails whip on display. One has tarred um flails to it so that would very obviously wreak havoc on your body if you then look very carefully on hms victory you will see that there is a punishment section on one of the decks uh, where people could be chained up but also where they hang an example of a cat of nine tails whip which is much more typical of what we associate with it so it has knotted um, cords to it that's a very big affair. You know, it's, it's probably about four foot long in total. So it would have a lot of weight to it if you swung it. And it would be swung by the bosun, so the burliest member of the ship. Um, and you've also got to consider the materials. So the, the one on Victory is kind of twine. It's, it's knotted twine. It's a very kind of robust, it's not kind of spindly string. It's very robust in its nature. If you go into the Guards Museum, in uh, London, they have an example of a cat and nine tails, which, which was physically used. In fact, if you look very carefully, you can see little darkish sort of brown red splodges on it, which are probably indicative of residual bloodstains. So a gory piece of equipment. Um, now that's a much, much smaller affair. That's about two feet long at most, and including the handle and the, the threads on it are basically knotted string. So it's nowhere near as burly as what you can see in the Navy. So we don't really know what the answers are from that, other than to say that if the, the example in the Guards Museum was standard in the army, 
actually there's this big discrepancy um, in terms of what each individual lash physically represents in terms of damage to the body. So that's your nerdy kind of discussion of, of what's going to happen. The one thing I will say is the army has the facility to kill its men. So those who turn around and say, oh, well, the army is just trying to flog its men to death. No, it's really not. Because the whole reason that you flog somebody rather than shoot them is that you don't want to remove that individual from your unit. You're flogging them to send that public example saying, look, we will inflict this punishment on you. And then you will go back into your community. You will go back into your regiment. The army can't afford to be flogging its men to death. Think about the, um, the illness stats. About a third of Wellington's force is on sick leave at any point in time. He can't afford to be sending more men permanently to the hospitals because they've had their back ripped to shreds and there's no way they're going to be able to serve again. You know, the, these soldiers need to be able to return to their unit, carry their pack and march in a few days time. So I, I don't believe that it is about just the brutality. Yes, it's about sending that message and, and that's really important. This is meant to be about deterrence. Um, but bear in mind that for all of that, they're not interested in solitary confinement. They are committed to the lash. Um, solitary confinement doesn't come in until 1811 and it's very haphazard in terms of how it's brought in. It doesn't really take off until a long time post-war. So it's about 1817 where it really starts to ramp up. Partly because people don't believe in it. Wellington goes on the record, he testifies to Parliament saying that if you put somebody in solitary confinement, they're not going to be in solitary. It doesn't work. And there's a very simple reason for that. You've got to put a guard on the door. The guard's going to be bored. Are you seriously telling me that a private isn't going to have a conversation with whoever's in, whoever's locked up behind them? It's not going to work. So that definitely kind of puts the brakes on it. Um, but yeah, there's this, this ongoing question about flogging and are you going to stop this practice? And it's really interesting that even people like William Wilberforce, who we all know from his association with slavery, you know, one of the leading humanitarians of this period, turns around when the debates are happening in Parliament about flogging and says, I'm not sure it's practical to get rid of it right now. So there just isn't this same attitude back then that we have to the practice now. And was flogging legal in the civilian world at that time? Yes, it was. I don't know the details. Um, I'm not quite clear if we've got to the point where floggings are done in private by this point in time. I think they might actually have moved into internal punishments within a prison complex. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's where we got to. Apologies, that's not a very good answer to the question. No, don't worry, that, that's outside of your scope. I just, I just wondered if it was, you know, something that was debated in the civilian world as much as in the military world in, in that sense. So we've described, you know, how the regiment or the battalion is formed up. This, this man comes out and you said it's the drummer boy who administers the punishment. Is a drummer boy an actual boy? I know I, Victorian era is one of my interests and the, the drummer boy is usually actually a fully grown man. Is that the, is that the case in this, in this instance? It absolutely is. So Eamon O'Keefe's done some great work on this in kind of dispelling that myth. We're not talking about sort of eight, nine, 10, 12 year olds. We're talking people in their mid to late teens, early twenties in terms of age. So again, it's about these kind of balances. You know, you, uh, a 17 year old an 18 year old has a lot of weight behind them they might not be a bosun in their mid-20s who um, has you know is just built like an absolute tank 
but um yeah th these are not kind of little kids that are made to to do this these are young adults put it that way and would there be pressure on them to like dish out a good beating like because presumably you know these know these people in uh, often so their instinct would probably be to hold back would there be a lot of pressure on them not to do that would they be under close scrutiny absolutely they would and they get rotated as well so every 25 lashes you flick to a, another one and then they continue the punishment um, and partly that's about making sure that you know if you've got a thousand lash punishment that the last 500 lashes are as severe as the first 500 due to the tiredness of the person inflicting them um, so yeah it's it's a kind of a collective thing it's almost like a family affair um, and they don't have a choice in it you know you're given the order to flog if you don't well that's disobedience which means you can be tried probably before a regimental court-martial and you yourself can be flogged i don't see many drummers being flogged i have to say um, but it's it's certainly something that they didn't have a choice in they had to do it and then let's say all of the all of the uh, strokes have been given it's finished what then happens to the man does he have some sort of medical care generally what what's what what's the situation afterwards this is a bit of a murky area we're not massively clear on what happens there don't seem to be a lot of indications of people then being taken straight to the local casualty clearing station um, or the local hospital and receiving treatment it seems to have been done much more within the regiment which again sort of implies that horrendous yes but what you're probably dealing with is a bleeding back rather than you know the, the all of the flesh being stripped from somebody's back um, it seems as though there was a tendency to get it dealt with partly by battalion's wives um, you might bind the wound um, deal with any bleeding obviously because inevitably it's going to cause bleeding um, and just handle it that way rather than sort of the the big sort of expectation the other thing to bear in mind though is that there is a a surgeon who parades with the regiment who has to observe this flogging and has the responsibility to say stop when somebody has received enough now there's another big debate and i'm talking about all the debates here about whether or not once some once the flogging has been stopped because medically it's advised can you then tie them up and inflict the remainder and it's not until 1811 that we get a very clear stipulation on this but the rule is if somebody's had a flogging and it gets stopped that is it you do not tie them up and inflict the remainder now before that there does seem to have been this tendency to actually do that um, so it is still a sort of a murky area that we're still trying to find sources for but yeah this this idea that you get 1200 lashes if actually all it takes is 400 for you to pass out, that's deemed to be enough. Um, and equally, there is the facility for you to appeal to the officers. And we've got some brilliant anecdotes that we'll talk about at the end of this of people like even Crawford getting involved in that process. Um, so you can turn around and say, look, sir, even before the, the flogging start, look, sir, I'm a good soldier. Speak to my company. They will testify for me will you let me off on this occasion? And sometimes the answer is no, get yourself over there. You're going to take this flogging. Other times, the officers use this as a way of increasing their own stock. So we have um, one guy who's out in the fighting in the Waterloo campaign. And uh, he's an officer. I'm trying to remember his name off the top of my head. And it's right at the tip of my tongue. And I can't remember it. As soon as we stop recording, I will remember. And it's going to annoy me all day, all day. 
Um, but he, the surgeon isn't present. And so instead, the, uh, the colonel turns around to this guy um, and says, look, can you officiate instead? Doesn't say anything other than that. Just look, can you officiate and let me know when you think the guy's had enough? After about 50 lashes, this officer turns around and says, stop. In my opinion, he's had enough. And he's got the, the individual who's been tried has something like another 150 to go. So that's a significant kind of step in. And he's doing this because he knows that the, the rest of the unit are looking on going, come on, somebody stop this. Um, he also knows that the surgeon wouldn't do it because that's not in the surgeon's nature. So the surgeon is perhaps a little bit more sadistic, more inclined to let people take their full punishment. Once it's all over, not only are the rank and file quietly pleased about this situation, the colonel comes over and says, George, nicely done. That's exactly why I picked you to officiate on this one, because I hoped you'd step in at the right moment. So they're all playing this game. Nobody actually wants to beat the hell out of these soldiers because you've got to command them. And command and control doesn't work through fear. It works through respect. And so if you're going to do somebody that good turn, they're going to go, yeah, but that one, he's, he's all right. You know, he's the one who steps in and doesn't have us punished to the full extent of the law. He just makes sure we get punished. And then you create these kind of barriers of respect and different lines to what the law says, because then you start to realize that I can take it to a point, but if I cross that line, I'm abusing this kind of mutual respect and this mutual trust, and then all hell will come down on my head. Yeah. So given how horrific this form of punishment was, did it work? Did people still reoffend after this, or generally did it kind of scare them straight? Yeah, you do get reoffending, um, and it comes back to what I said earlier. I think that within every regiment, you're going to get a few kind of rotten individuals. Sure, the vast majority aren't pickings of the prisons, and yet there will be some people who are just maladjusted to society. It's probably the nicest way I can put it. Sometimes you get trauma having an influence in terms of changing people's character. Sometimes you get people who have grievances, who you know, they, they feel wrong. So, for example, one guy after Vittoria has his pack searched and all of his loot confiscated. And before that point, he's a really good soldier. The only time that he ever steps out of line is when he wants to go and see his girlfriend um, as they're sort of marching past the town. And he doesn't really handle the situation very well. And so he asks his captain, but he kind of rough fluffs it. And the captain goes, look, shut up, get back in line. And so he goes to the colonel and the colonel goes, what the hell are you doing? Arrest this guy. That's the only time that he's tried, according to his own testimony. But after Vittoria, he obviously picks up plunder, like so many of them do, from Joseph's baggage train. And then when his loot is confiscated, he feels that the contract's been broken. You know, this idea of plunder for reward suddenly gets shattered. And he goes, well, if you're not going to give me what I'm entitled to, what I can physically take off the field, I'll just take anything. And so from that moment on, you do see this change in his memoirs where he's suddenly involved in all of these murky dealings, you know, little bits of smuggling, trying to take bits on the side and so on. Um, so you, you, you do get people who change in the course of things. Also got to bear in mind that not all crimes are consistent. So you might have somebody who's tried for selling their regimental necessaries on one day, and yet actually they're up for drunkenness or a, a few months or even years later. So repeat offence isn't quite the same thing. And depending on quite what the crime is and how often it happens as well 
depends on whether or not they go to a court martial. So the first time somebody is drunk on duty, for example, you might get uh, the officer just giving them a good kick in the ribs and going, you do that again, you know what will happen. So we don't necessarily pick all of those up. That said, you do sometimes get people who really obviously um, are, are trying their luck. Uh, and desertion is the big one because desertion and absence are half of what gets put through the military courts. So I have one case of three privates, James Smith, John Williams, and Joseph Widows, who were tried in Quebec uh, in September 1816. And they're tried in that intermediate court, the General Regimental Courts Martial. And they're tried for desertion. Now they all go, yeah, hands up. I'm guilty. I did it. I wasn't with the unit, but I was drunk when I ran away. So I didn't know what I was doing. And this is a really common, very clever um, way of spinning things. And there is this kind of knowledge amongst the rank and file that there are certain ways that you can spin certain crimes to just take the edge off. You're going to get punished because you were dumb enough to get caught, but you can stop yourself from getting the full force of military law thrown at you. So they then say, look, please have mercy. You know, I was drunk, I ran away. And then what they can always do is they can play the army at their own game and say, well, look, having run away, then I got scared because I know what you do to deserters. You, you, you shoot deserters and you flog deserters. And I didn't want that. So I didn't know what to do. So it's not really my fault. It's partly your fault. Really clever. I love it. Now, they all receive uh, 800 lashes. Some of the officers on that case actually say, no, nah, they need more like a thousand, but they get 800 lashes. When it comes to Joseph Widows, though, he's convicted of desertion again seven months later. So I'm not entirely sure we can believe his I just got drunk uh, defense. So sure, it absolutely happens. Um, but the, the whole point is kind of about deterrence for the mass. So if you do need to consistently make an example of one guy, because they are one of those tearaways, actually, the regiment can kind of see that and recognize that. There's a lovely um, anecdote of, I think it's Mainwaring who's responsible for this one. Mainwaring was utterly mental in terms of how he handled discipline. And again, when we do the anecdotes, you'll hear some really outlandish ideas uh, that he has. But on one occasion, I'm pretty sure it's him who basically turns around to the regiment and says, look, this guy's um, down for, for this particular flogging. Will the regiment testify for his good conduct and vouch that he won't do it again? Complete silence from the paraded men. So the flogging starts, and I forget if it's 25 or 50 lashes he has, before the colonel turns again to the unit and goes, okay, will his company vouch for his future good conduct? Total silence, another 50 or 25. And you know you're not popular. Exactly. I mean, talk about being damned by silence. Um, so then he goes, what about his platoon? Nothing. In the end, he goes, look, will one person in this unit vouch for this guy? And then one of his mates pipes up. And then he goes, yeah, I thought it might be you who'd say something for him. And then afterwards, the, the colonel turns to the unit and goes, look, I didn't realise you had such a high sense of honour. Good stuff. Um, so it's very much about this kind of mutual respect and people knowing when a certain individual just tries it too often or is particularly badly behaved. And because the majority are well behaved, I mean, bear in mind, so I can look at like nine and a half thousand cases. You've got a quarter of a million men in the British Army in 1813 alone. So we're dealing with a very, very small 
subsection of this force that ends up on trial. You know, the majority toe the line, or they toe the line well enough to not end up before a military court. And so that really plays into this sense of actually we kind of need flogging just to keep those really bad ones in check because actually I'm well behaved. I'm not going to do anything that's going to land me at a flogging. I might end up with a black eye for a particular offence at a company courts martial. But because there is that recognition of where the boundaries lie and the ones that you really don't cross, actually this idea that the flogging for the ones who are stupid enough to really cross the line is, is okay. Although desertion is a gray area because they do empathize on occasions with this idea that you know there are, there are reasons why you might desert. And so desertion ends up being a bit of a gray area. Um, but for the most part, if, if they did it, that's fair cop. And then I guess one intriguing question, officers, am I right in saying that officers could not be flogged or is that an incorrect statement? No, that is absolutely correct. You could shoot an officer, you couldn't flog them. Um, so, you know, make what you will out of that. There is this basically two tier punishment system. So for the officers, it's very much about kind of honor based punishments and financial or seniority sanctions. The idea behind this is kind of put yourself in the mindset of ancien regime society. There is this belief that a certain class is kind of born or was given this God-given right to lead. And for the ordinary folks like you and me, the mere minions of this world, we are just there to admire their natural knowledge and all the rest of it. Um, social mobility does happen. Of course it does. You do get people who are promoted from the ranks. Not commonly, obviously. Um, but for the most part, it's about kind of creating this separation. If you flog an officer, you're basically saying, look, they're on the same level as you guys. And society is just not built for that during this point in time. So the honor-based punishments are literally a public or private reprimand. This is if you've done something that's a little bit naughty um, and it's probably the first time that you've done it and somebody's just going to sort of have a word with you and go, this is not on. Now that can actually be quite shameful. Bear in mind that this is the era where honor is everything. People live and die by their honor. So if you are um, reprimanded before the regiment, the entire regiment parades as your senior officer stands there and publicly tells you, this was not okay. These are the issues with your conduct. You are not going to do this again. Otherwise the consequences will be more severe. So there is that public spectacle element to it. You also get private reprimands. I mean, that's basically like a slap on the wrist. You know, look, this wasn't on. Can we all just move on a little bit? Um, then you get the, the financial sanctions, you know, reductions in uh, pay for a set period of time. And that usually comes with a suspension of rank for a set period of time. So basically they will sort of bump you down the army list by six months or whatever it might be. You can get cashiered. You can get chucked out of the army. That's probably the worst one other than execution, obviously, but that never happens. That's just there for things like mutiny. Um, so the, the reason that that hurts is because people buy their ranks. You, your listeners will know this. If you buy a commission and then you buy the next rank up, these are major financial investments. You know, these are literally tens of thousands of pounds in modern money that people are pouring into these jobs. So if you get cashiered, you can't then sell your rank. So you lose tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of investment, as well as having that dishonor of being kicked out of the army. And sometimes they also add this kind of thing on the end. 
that you won't be able to serve his majesty in any capacity so it basically bars you from government it makes you this kind of almost exile from any kind of government service in the future and have you come across any executions of officers you say they could be executed have you come across any none at all um the obvious one that springs to mind that's not in my period is bing the uh, the admiral who gets um executed on his own quarter deck i mean there's a bad day at the office if ever there was one um being shot on your quarter deck by your own men mm, not great um but yeah i've never seen it uh, i haven't actually seen any trials for cowardice either from the officers um it's very much but again you know there are these these ways of, of dealing with issues quietly um so if somebody's not showing the inverted commas moral fiber that you expect of them for whatever reason, you know, it might be that they're suffering from something like PTSD, that can happen. Um, there are ways of sort of quietly encouraging them to just leave the regiment, whether that's ostracizing them from the mess, whether that's sort of quiet words about, look, you need to take medical leave, go home, you're not well. Um, so there are ways of dealing with that. One of the other fun things, fun in inverted commas, is dueling. And this is a really weird one. And I often am on the record for criticizing Wellington for this, for his hypocrisy, because dueling is not legal. Now we all know that Wellington fights a duel against Winchelsea. He holds a commission when he does that, and he will have signed off on trials where officers have dueled because it's not allowed. Um, but dueling, so you know, hypocrisy from Wellington there, but dueling is not permitted because quite obviously it's bad for business if your own officers kill each other. That's generally not what you want them to do. You want them to be killing the enemy. It's a basic fact of military service, right? Um, and in theory, if you send a summons for a duel, you can face trial for it. If you fight a duel, you absolutely can face trial for it. And yet, when you end up in a courtroom and people have found the dead body, so they know that an officer's been killed, um, you get people who are summoned as witnesses and they go, I've got no idea what happened. You know, I, I have no clue. I, I thought these two officers got on terribly well. I've got no, I wasn't involved as a second in this duel. Absolutely not, sir. You know, I'm, I'm playing this obvious game. Clearly, it's nonsense. Um, but the flip side to this is that you're meant to show a certain level of moral fibre. So if you're sent a summons for a duel and you don't accept those summons, you're not showing yourself to be, inverted commas, manly which can therefore mean people cast aspersions on your honour. And if you're not honourable, you shouldn't be an officer. So then you find a situation where people then go after you in the mess and basically bully you or try to bully you out of the regiment for not accepting the summons to a duel, which if you'd accepted, you'd have ended up on trial. But you're going to end up on trial anyway because you're not showing officer-like characteristics. It's a bizarre set of circumstances. Really caught between a rock and a hard place there. Too right. Um, and... And you, these people end up on trial, you know, and, and it's only as you start to re read through the details of the trials, because the summary is just, you know, unofficer-like conduct, which can mean anything. You know, that can, drunk on duty is unofficer-like conduct through to, um, I don't know, <laughs> leaving the battlefield it is technically unofficer-like conduct because you're not fulfilling your duty. Um, but yeah, you read some of these cases and basically they're being harassed for not breaking military law and because they're not showing that moral fiber they're not being officerly so they end up on trial 
it's 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 takes some getting your head around believe me yeah gosh well well look i'm aware we're kind of running out of time a little bit here so let me let me skip forward to um from your research, what was the response to these punishments such as flagging? If you, could, if you could give us a sort of brief overview, were the, in general, were the officers and men in favour or was it very much frowned upon and disliked? Yeah, it's, it's, known, it's a known deterrent. You know, it's one of those things that people, they know they'll use it, but they'll only use it to a point. So we've talked about, um, I still can't remember his name, the guy who, who steps in and says, um, you know, that's enough. And that pragmatism is really key. You also get this kind of culture of plunder for reward, which is also kind of key within all of this. So there are times when officers will say, you can now go and plunder. Uh, so in the, the morning before the Battle of Waterloo, um, General Adams allegedly turns around to some soldiers and said, look, you've been on duty all night. You've done a brilliant job. There are three farmhouses. Be back here in an hour. Uh, and so, you know, this creates this really kind of blurred distinction. You also get people who turn around and say, look, you know, the commissariat can't feed you. There's a garden full of vegetables. Have at it, gents, sort of thing. Um, so officers don't love a flogging. You get sadistic gits. Of course you do. Um, but those ones are the ones who are quite often weeded out in the process, because in the six monthly inspection reports, generals will turn around and say this army this this regiment is using flogging too much you need to find other ways to instill discipline so it's not as though everybody's wedded to the lash but the figures are eye-watering you know two million says it all uh, and that's not even across all of the cases in the army that's just the nine and a half thousand that i've looked at and there's probably another third still to add on to that um but yeah being overly brutal destroys a regiment destroys its morale the other thing to throw into this mix is the practice of fragging. This is the idea that if you are too sadistic, you're too brutal, when it comes to a battle, you might find that you end up with a bullet in the back of your head, courtesy of your own men. So it's not as though the officers fear the men, but they know that this is a relationship. You've got to command, not simply beat these people into submission. And just quickly, the men themselves, have you come across much evidence that they thought it was actually a good thing or is it generally hated? It's not liked, nobody likes to witness a flogging, um, but it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, you know, this idea that there needs to be a deterrent for the worst individuals and this recognition that by and large, the officers can be trusted in terms of how they wield this. There is gonna be this sort of slightly fatalistic attitude, isn't there? This is a society that has public executions. They're gonna be used to a more brutal treatment um, just generally, but, because they, I mean, bear in mind, they get the rules read to them. I think it's every month. It's either every month or every other month on parade. And that's written into law that the, the, the rules, the legal stipulations have to be outlined to them. And that in turn means that they know where these boundaries are. So they know they're playing a dangerous game. And if they can trust the officer, then actually it doesn't matter quite so much what the law says. What matters is that bond with the officer. And that then dictates this, this whole relationship and the practical implementation of law, because then you can say, okay, look, if I really overstep the mark, then yes, I am gonna be punished. But if I'm smart enough to not take this too far, there's that flexibility in that relationship, which means that this system is practical rather than sort of 
exactly applied in terms of the letter of the law. Brilliant. Well, well, that Zach, I think we're, we're nearly there to wrap up. I just wondered from your research and from everything you've read, is there anything particularly surprising or interesting you've come across that you think is worth sharing? Yeah, there are, there are all sorts that we could um, look at. One is cack-handed attempts at defence. So there's a guy called Rufus Moon who's on trial for desertion, and he's trying to make out that um, they didn't need to use violence to detain him. And so when the witness is called, Moon, he's a private, he's clearly not educated. His, his attempts are very kind of ham-fisted in terms of the questions that you're asking. He goes, is it not the case that when you uh, went to take my musket, I said that you could have it and I would be your prisoner? And the witness turns around and goes, no, he didn't say that. But he did offer me some money in order to let him escape. Unsurprisingly, <laughs> Moon ends up being shot. So they get the opportunity to defend themselves. People do listen carefully to the defense. You know, if you want to summon a witness, they will stop the trial. If you suddenly, so there's one guy who's, it's a really interesting case actually, because he tries to defend himself on grounds of not being of his right mind. So it's kind of this question of mental health and is this guy suffering from PTSD? And so he says, look, I need, I'm very sorry to interrupt the proceedings, but I need you to summon this particular guy because I had a conversation with him. He knows me. He will be able to say that I was not in my right mind during the period in which these events transpired. And so they stop the trial for about 48 hours to summon the witness. And then the guy goes on the stand and he goes, I haven't got a clue who this guy is. I'm, I'm very sorry, but I don't know this defendant. And so, you know, trials can just fall apart like that. I mentioned Maine Waring, um, and this is a, a fun one uh, to, to bring listeners. So Maine Waring, he's the commander of the 51st Light Infantry. We have a lot of insight into his methods, thanks to the letters of William Wheeler, um, who, if folks are looking for a really good read and to kind of get into the mindset of what it's like being in a regiment, go find Wheeler's letters. They're brilliant. Um, and there are two that I want to share with you. The first is... Um, a guy who's been caught, um, and rather than have him flogged, Mainwaring makes the guy walk the entire length of the paraded regiment and orders his men to spit on the offender. He actually says, spit on this cowardly poltroon. You would piss on him if it were not too indecent. <laughs> so, you know, clearly Mainwaring a curious individual. The other one that I particularly love is where he uses um, the regiment's honour to try and wipe away the shame of a crime. So he appeals to the regiment, goes, look, I don't want to flog this guy. What am I going to do? You've got any suggestions? And everybody's silent. Nobody's going to start to tell May Waring how to run his regiment. Um, so he comes up with this bizarre system, which is where he has the battalion colours unfurled and then held at right angles. He has the offender stripped naked literally naked, uh, and then walk underneath the lowered colours. And he makes him do this twice. And he basically says, we are going to use the regiment's honour represented by the colours to wipe away the shame of the crime. And this is really key in terms of reputations of units. They don't want association with really bad behaviour. So when I was talking about desertion and absence, quite often you see desertion, which should be taken to the top end court the general court's martial being dealt with quietly, either as absence. What's the difference between being absent for a week and desertion? Well, that's a really kind of gray area. You also get people who are tried for desertion 
in regimental courts martial, which is not okay. And they've been absent for periods of years, literally years. I've got a guy who deserts in 1801, is found in 1812. He's tried at regimental courts martial. That's not legal. You know, the guy ran away from the army. That's 800 lash, uh, that's sorry, uh, uh, 1500 lash slash being shot kind of offense. Um, the other thing that I think you might quite enjoy is I talked about my court martial database. So before we came on air, I, uh, I searched the name Parkinson in this database to, oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, just, I'm going to start off by saying the whites were a hell of a lot worse than this. Okay, so do not feel bad. The whites were awful, genuinely awful. So we have a Robert Parkinson in the 1st Battalion, 7th Regiment, uh, tried in 1811 for losing his blanket and necessaries. With the best will in the world, I don't mean to be rude, I suspect he did more than lose his blanket. I suspect he might have sold it. He gets 100 lashes and 50 of those are remitted, which probably implies it was a first offence. Doesn't yeah. get fined, actually, which is curious. Um, next up, we have Private Samuel Parkinson. He's in the 74th Regiment, tried in 1812, for losing or making away with 60 rounds of ammunition and a blanket and a sheet and a pair of old shoes and a wooden canteen, all of which are part of his regimental necessaries, apologies. The Parkinson's so, do love their blankets, or selling them anyway. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm afraid that that seems to be the case. Uh, so he's put under stoppages, gets 300 lashes, and the flogging is pardoned. So he was probably a well-behaved individual, but I'm sorry, mate, he, he was selling that kit. You just know it's the, know it's the case. Yeah. And then we have another private Parkinson, Lave Parkinson, L-A-I-V. He's tried at General Regimental Courts Martial, so the, the next step up. He's from the 56th Regiment, tried in 1814. I'm sorry to say he was found asleep whilst on duty as a sentry. He gets 500 lashes for it, and those aren't pardoned. So dereliction of duty appears yeah. to be um, associated with the family name. character, to be fair. <laughs> I'll let you comment on that rather than me. As my dad always used to say when I was growing up, our, our family regiment was the Queen's Own Mounted Deserters. So there you go. Ah, perhaps I should have taken this a little bit later and seen if I could have found some evidence of that. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I appreciate you looking that up for me, Zach. That's very interesting. And I'll, I'll forward that to the family. I think they'll have a, a, a real interest in that. So thank you. No worries. My pleasure. Brilliant. Well, Zach, before we go, do you just want to wrap up by telling people where they can get in touch with you, uh, how they can listen to, to your podcast and that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So, folks, I'm on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. Um, so that's your best bet if you want to drop me a, a message, if you've got any questions. Uh, my show is the Napoleonic Wars podcast. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. It's, it's easy to find. Um, and if you want to know about more about the, the charity, the Napoleonic Revolutionary War Graves charity is www.nrwgc.com. And we're doing a big push for volunteers at the moment to kind of get people to go out into the field, start hunting for graves for us, and also go into archives and try and work out who was in the army during this period. It's a massive project. It's probably the biggest attempt to try and locate the, the burial places of veterans since the end of the Second World War. We've got millions of people that we're trying to find. Um, so if you drop us a line at contact.nrwgc at gmail.com, we can send you details of what that involves. Zach was good value, wasn't he? I learned a lot from that chat, especially that my ancestors did like to sell their kit. I highly recommend his Napoleonic Wars podcast, by the way, so do check that out. 
In the meantime, I have a new series starting at the end of the month all about the Indian Mutiny of 1857, a terrible war that nearly saw the British swept from India. I'll be releasing an episode of that around the first of each month from here on out, and then in the weeks in between I'll still be trying to post other interviews with guests. Alright guys, cheers, take care, and we will march again together soon.